Welcome to the EyeSight Podcast. In today's episode, we're foraying into the evolving world of work with our guest, Dr. Michelle P. King, author of How Work Works. Dr. Michelle is also a globally recognized inequality and organizational culture expert. She believes we need to learn how workplaces work to make them work for everyone. Joining Michelle is Lindsay James, as well as the managing editor of EyeSight magazine, Sushmita Roy. For anyone leading or managing teams, big or small, this episode is a must-listen. We'll be exploring how workplaces are shifting from traditional models to more collaborative and inclusive environments. Dr. Michelle will help shed some light on how one might go about trying to find meaning at work while touching upon the importance of social and emotional skills, the impact of AI and globalization on work, and hopefully also offer some practical advice you can use Monday morning. If you are looking to enhance your leadership skills or create a more dynamic and future-proof workplace, this episode has valuable insights for you. Lindsay, take it away. Okay. Um, Do you want to start off then by explaining um, what you think is most commonly holding people back um, from progressing in their careers? Sure. So I would probably say the ability to navigate the informal side of working life. So what I mean by that is we know that workplaces have changed. So back in the 1950s, when a lot of organizations were sort of first designed and their management theories and structures that kind of made up how workplaces worked, a lot of us could go to work, sit down at a desk, do our task, go home. So the best way to lead and succeed in that environment was really being quite transactional, quite command and control, quite dominant, aggressive, maybe even a little bit exclusionary. And so, you know, that type of environment, that very transactional environment, a lot of people would have focused on what they achieved. And the reality is today, you know, most of us have to work with other people to achieve outcomes. About 82% of jobs require some form of collaboration in order to do the role. And so this idea that you can sort of, you know, win at somebody else's expense is gone. Like our collective ability to succeed requires that we know how to influence, persuade and work with people who maybe don't share our background. And so I think for a lot of people, the challenge is organizations and the leaders that make up organizations haven't actually caught on to this. So a lot of managers, a lot of leaders still buy into this idea that if we just command and control bark orders at people, you know, try and get ahead in a way that really negatively impacts other people, it's going to work and it just doesn't. So everything we want is on the other side of knowing how to manage the how of work, right? So how we collaborate, how we influence and how we persuade. So a good example of this is a study came out that showed 75% of career success depends on advanced social and emotional skills. Only 25% of your career success depends on technical, you know, typically it's called hard skills. And the reason for that is you can learn those skills, right? You can go to a course and do it, but actually learning the social and emotional sides requires a lot more effort, which is why I, I wrote the book. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Okay. So can you give us some examples of the new rules of work and how these rules impact the, the way that we work together? Yes. So, you know, Sharing how workplaces have changed and the importance of managing, you know, the how of work in this new context we're in, which is, I think, important for readers to first understand before we go into what the rules are, I want to really explain what's the new world of work that we all talk about. So a lot of people mention AI, automation, the way in which that's changing a lot of jobs, 
how employees are becoming, you know, increasing. We're seeing sort of globally the rise of demographic diversity when it comes to sort of employee makeup. We're seeing that in terms of customers through increased globalization. So all of these changes, right, have changed the nature of not only how we work, but our work environments. So most of us work with people who don't look like us. Most of us have to, you know, try and find ways to navigate this new hyper-social workplace. A lot of organizations with the rise of technology are also becoming increasingly informal. So we're seeing a lot flatter organizational structures, less of a hierarchy. Some of the most at-risk jobs are actually mid-level manager roles because companies have slowly, you know, shifting towards more teams that are self-managing. So this hyper-social work environment we now find ourselves in really requires this new way of working. And I'll give you a quick example. So in the book, one of the four kind of areas that I talk about when it comes to the new, the new rules for the new world of work is informal networking. So back in the day in the 1950s, you could have just networked informally or connected, built relationships with people who looked like you and gotten away with it, right? So this is where we get the old boys club. So a lot of white male leaders just network with other white male leaders and that actually helped their career advancement. Today, one of the worst things you could do is only network with people who look like you, largely because organizations are increasingly becoming more demographically diverse. I think by 2044, half of all Americans will really, you know, typically be part of an underrepresented group in, in organizations. So we are going to see demographic shifts and, and notably, a lot of studies have now found that, you know, the top 20% of high-performing individuals have a diverse network. 70% of all jobs come through the informal network, right? They're not advertised. So 80% of roles are never advertised. And so your employability, your future career success depends on your ability to build and navigate an informal network. The problem is just the name of informal you know, puts people like, well, what does that even mean? We barely understand networking. Now you tell me I've got to manage an informal network. And the problem is when we think of networking, for a lot of us, it conjures up these really weird images of going to a cocktail party and handing out a business card. And if you're a slightly introverted like me, that thought is a bit of a nightmare. But the reality is that isn't what informal networking is, right? And we can go into this a bit deeper, but there's a whole bunch of things you can do to actively manage, build, and maintain your informal network that ultimately will serve you when it comes to your employability. So the first area is informal networks. The second that the book goes into is what we call informal information sharing. So people who give you access to information actually help to build your self-awareness and your awareness of others. And that's super, super important when it comes to managing informal interactions. And then the third piece is really how we navigate our informal development. 70% of all learning happens on the job. It's not a course. So we've got to know how do we continually learn and upskill as we're undertaking our job, right? And then the final piece is really about in this new world of work, there is no one career ladder. You don't just advance from job to job to job. So how do you actively manage your career? And how do you manage your advancement? And importantly, how do you find meaning and fulfillment from what you do? So those are already the four areas um, that the book goes into. And each of those, you know, have rules, if you like, or what typically I'm a researcher. So I share the common research findings and recommendations around what you can do to manage those four informal parts of, of work that make up um, how workplaces work. Brilliant. 
That's great. Okay, so what would you say um, are the biggest benefits that we can realise from following these new rules? I think, you know, the greatest benefit um, not a lot of people ask me about, but the book goes into in the final chapter is really about meaning and fulfilment. So this sounds a little woo-woo. It's not, as I say, I'm, I'm a researcher, so I like facts. I don't tend to share opinions. And um, we, you know, in the data, a lot of data really tells us that in that transactional way of working, we were encouraged to believe that our meaning and our fulfillment would come from achieving a job title, from, you know, gaining a particular salary, that status, that external sort of validation. And that's not actually true. So all of your meaning at work tends to come from one thing, which is your connections with others. And somewhere along the line, recently, I've definitely noticed this trend towards sort of it being a bit uncool to care about work. And what we forget when we criticize our boss or criticize our teammates or hate on our workplace is that we are our workplaces, right? And so it's recognizing that, you know, nine out of 10 of us would trade a significant portion of our income, actually as much as we spend on housing for greater meaning and fulfillment at work. Your meaning and fulfillment come through your connections with others. So how do you develop that? Well, there's one practice that I share in the book that disproportionately contributes to your sense of meaning at work, which is paying it forward. In America, that terms used in academia, we call it organizational citizenship behaviors, but really what it means is taking time to support your peers. And for me, it's not just random acts of kindness, it's actually supporting them with the informal. So it's how are you supporting your peers with informal networking? How are you sharing information? How are you helping their development? How are you helping their advancement and advocating for their advancement? And the amazing thing about how this works from a scientific perspective is if you go out of your way to connect with me, Lindsay, let's just use you as an example, and somebody observes you making the effort to take time to get to know me, to connect with me. Let's say we I don't share your background, your demographic background, and somebody sees you being inclusive in that way. Not only will you feel good for having done that, I'm going to respond positively and connect to you more and, and be, you know, more willing to pay it forward back to you, right? To reciprocate what you've done. But anybody observing that will also then want to pay it forward to you. So you get this threefold effect of connection, of paying it forward, of support. That's how it works. And that's why it's such a powerful thing. So in the book, I really share how we can craft, create, and mold our meaning at work through you know, paying it forward and, and con consciously really investing in those four areas of work. Brilliant. Okay. In the book, you talk quite a lot about reading the air. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, and offer some advice of, about how we can do that effectively? Yeah, so the book actually shares an example. It's a true story of a Japanese businessman who was in a meeting with a client and the client said, you know, that's a really nice new watch you've got or something like that. And the Japanese businessman looked at his watch and then carried on the meeting. Now, in Japan, they're sort of experts at reading the informal, right? It's a big part of their society. But I was trying to share that example um, because actually with the client, what he was trying to communicate was, hey, it's time to wrap up this meeting. And people, you know, I give a lot of talk talks and interviews in different countries will say, well, you know, in America, we're a lot more straightforward than that. And it's really upon, you know, the other person just to tell us to wrap up the meeting. That's actually not true. Every country has different versions of this where we talk and say things in a way that 
is kind of between the lines where we sort of imply what we really mean. And it's really important because it's a way of demonstrating care. So we don't think of it like that, but the more sort of overtly aggressive you are, the more sort of you embarrass a person socially, the harder it is to actually connect. It erodes connection. It can be very difficult, right? And so social norms matter. And, you know, in Britain, they might call it reading the room. Um, you know, in America, they might call it reading between the lines. In different cultures, it means different things. In Japan, it directly translates to read the air. But what it really is, is this ability to understand the informal. Now, my book, I, I don't go into sort of generally being able to read the air. I say, look, you need to read the air at work when it comes to these four things, right? The informal network, all of that. And so the book goes into why those four systems matter most when it comes to your career and then how to read them. So how do you map your networks? How do you diversify your network? How do you do these things? And so trying to give people practical ways to actually, actually, you know, read the air when it comes to work. Brilliant. Okay, great. So can you give us a sneak preview of one of your actionable tips um, that might help our readers to do better at work? I know you've already given us quite a lot of good tips, so I think this is going to be really good for the readers. Sure. So, well, why don't we dive into self-awareness? And if we have time, we can always go into networking because I know that's a big one for people. So self-awareness is really the gap between how you see yourself and how others see you in terms of your thoughts, behaviors, and feelings, and how you're expressing that. So you might think, look, I'm showing up in this way, but how that's actually received, the impact of that behavior might be very differently felt. And the challenge with self-awareness is there's a major self-awareness gap. 90% of people actually lack self-awareness, right? And the problem is most people actually think they're self-aware when they're not. And the higher up an organization you go, the more this problem is really demonstrated. So in academia, we call it the CEO disease because leaders typically do not have access to honest feedback, to diverse range of feedback. So they can't close that self-awareness gap, right? They can't manage the impact their behavior has. And self-awareness is really important. So to give you a quick example, there's sort of two ways you can lack self-awareness. You can either be somebody who overestimates how awesome you are or somebody who consistently underestimates. If you're an overestimator, got really bad news for you. You are very difficult to work with. So studies show just having one overestimator on your team can reduce your team's performance by 50%. And that's because overestimators are not open to feedback. So they're not willing to take that feedback on board, moderate their behavior because they think they're awesome. Whereas underestimators are much more open to hearing the positive aspects. They they just, they can become self-aware. They've just got to do a bit more work on really owning their strengths, owning, you know, what they're working on. So I think one way to kind of close the gap, if you're sitting here thinking, God, I think I might be an overestimator is, and that actually is demonstrating quite a high degree of self-awareness, so well done, is actually, you know, one study found that making sure you take 15 minutes a day for 10 days, so anyone can do this, 15 minutes a day for 10 days, and in those 15 minutes, consider the following questions. You know, what worked well today? What went well for me at work? What didn't go so well, right? And what could I do differently? So those are all what we call what questions. So what you want to avoid in this is asking any why questions. So that didn't go well, why? I don't think my boss likes me. I think my teammates hate me. Ah, right. Not helpful. 
So what went well, what didn't, what could I do differently? If you do that for 15 minutes a day for 10 days, you will increase your self-awareness by 23%. Now that doesn't sound a lot, but that's within 10 days. So making this a regular practice over time will help you close the gap. And that's for anyone who doesn't have access to direct feedback. Whereas what I would like people to do is A, do that reflection exercise, but also in the day-to-day moments, seek out regular feedback. That feedback is data, it's information on where's the gap, how do I close it, even if you disagree. In fact, if you disagree with the feedback, lean into it more. Because that's going to help you understand, hey, I didn't mean it that way. I don't see it that way. That's not how I intended it. But something about the way that I'm doing this is coming across in this way. And I think the problem is what people forget, again, is, you know, trying to close the self-awareness gap is one way to demonstrate to your peers, I really care about you. I care about the impact my behavior has. I want you to have a good experience when you interact with me. I don't want people to have a horrible experience, right, in terms of working with me. And so I think recognizing it's a way of demonstrating care rather than sitting in your ego of like, oh my God, I've got all this feedback, everything's wrong with me, you know. And my big thing is, you know, if you remember one thing from this podcast, it's don't make it weird. Like, don't make it weird. So don't ask the person for feedback and then cry and get them to comfort you. Like, don't do any of that. Just, you know, hey. And again, when you're asking for feedback, it's what questions. So what worked well? What do you think I could do differently? Great, thanks so much. Move on, right? Don't like make this make it weird by doing the whole you know challenging thing as you move through so that's a really good action everybody could take and do you think asking those what questions is a good way for more senior executives to get more honest feedback from their from their team yeah so you can text that Yeah, like what questions are safe, right? So if you stick to, hey, what worked, what didn't, people can give you that feedback. The moment you go into, well, why do you think it came across? Like that's not helpful, right? The why isn't helpful. Brilliant. Uh, Could we have some pointers for the networking that you just mentioned? When it comes to informal networking, I think the first thing is you want to make them visible, visible, right? When we talk about informal networks, well, who's in your network? So the first thing you want to do is get a piece of paper and write down anyone who does one of these three things. And they might do all three, but anyone who gives you access to information that helps you do your job, information that helps you understand what's going on at work, anybody who gives you what we call social support. So if you're having a rough day, you might just go and share how you're feeling. And anybody who gives you advice at work, right? Just general career advice, any type of advice, right? And so this is in workplaces specifically. So anyone who does one of those three things is probably in your informal network. And then what you want to do is have a look at that list of names and write down whether the person for each each name, uh, whether the person's more similar or more different from you. So studies show if you are consistently introducing yourself to people in your your informal network, so if the people in your informal network are people you have reached out to and trying to introduce yourself to, very likely your network is very similar. And one of the reasons is often one way to diversify our networks is, you know, to actively go out and reach out to people who aren't similar to us because we tend to like people who are similar to us, which is why that, that is true, and get them to introduce us to other people because they're likely to have a very diversified network, right? So that's one way to to look at it. And I think the big one on the diversification of your network is to be very conscious and mindful about 
what relationships am I investing in? I think the second thing is it's very important to understand where the relationships that you have at work are what we call mutually beneficial. So you you don't have endless time, resources, you know, and energy to invest in building and connecting with every single person in your workplace. You just don't. So you have to be quite mindful about well, where am I investing in building connections? And what studies tell us is that 90% of anxiety at work comes from 5% of the network. And that tends to be people we're ambiguous about. So we're not anxious when it comes to people we know don't have our back and aren't people we want to invest in. And we're not anxious with the people who do have our back and invest in because they, they've got our backs. It's the people where we're not sure. And so what I want you to do is as you're going through your list again, say, is this somebody that it's a mutually beneficial relationship, which tends to include three things, somebody you can share positive and negative feelings with, somebody you can discuss ideas with, and somebody you can disagree with. So if, it, if you have those three things, it tends to be mutually beneficial. If it isn't and you're not sure, then, you know, really recognize that, yes, you can continue to invest in that, but it might be mentally and emotionally draining. Why? Because you're going to spend a huge amount of time being like, does this person have my back? Is this person my friend? I'm not sure, right? It creates that anxiety. And then I think the third thing is just when you're looking at your network, and the book has additional tips, but I just want to highlight the main ones. The third and sort of last thing to think about is when you're going through it, you actually want a mix of what we call loose versus close connections. So close connections are people you meet with regularly and you tend to have like, you know, quite deep sort of conversations with or, you know, important, meaningful conversations with. Whereas loose connections are people that are more like acquaintances. You meet infrequently. When you see them, you say hi. You actually need both in a network. The reason being is loose connections give you access to information and typically information about jobs. So you're passing someone in the hall. They might say, hey, did you hear such and such is leaving? And I wonder who will get that job. That's how you know there's an opportunity. Or you're on Zoom and, you know, oh, hey, just before we're waiting for any everybody else to join, how's the weekend? Good, how are you? And that's where somebody might tell you about an opportunity. So in you, making sure you've got that balance between sort of acquaintances and then close connections really matters. Thank you all for joining us in this engaging conversation with Michelle P. King. Today's discussion provided a deep dive into the changing landscape of the workplace and the essential skills needed in this new era. We hope this episode has been enlightening and equipped you with practical strategies for personal and professional development. Keep tuning in for more episodes where we explore leadership, innovation, and a whole lot more. Until next time, stay ahead of the curve with the EyeSight Podcast.